know that was exciting. Go ahead and find your seat, please. Contain yourselves, everybody. Bring it, nobody's listening. Bring it back in. <clears throat> find your seats, please. Thank you, Danielle. I know there's a new baby in the house, so he's stay he's staying with us. So we'll we'll have you have plenty of time <laughs> to uh, hang out with him. If you would go ahead and turn over on your uh, into the, our life together page on the very last page there, just to give you a, a few announcements, reminders. One is we have a Good Friday service coming up, so please make uh, yourself available for that. Uh, it should be a good time of just reflection and preparing ourselves. Um, for Easter Sunday, so so be uh, be sure to put that on your calendar. Um, our another CTK 101 class is coming up in April as well. Uh, so if you are interested in Christ the King Church, just even if you just want questions answered, that it doesn't commit you to the church, doesn't make you a member. Um, we don't we don't think that you're going to become a member just because you come to that. But but if you want to become a member. You have to come to CTK 101. So I just encourage you, if you've been here a couple of times and you're not a member yet, to just come on. Um, you're probably going to end up joining. We already know that. So just come on to the class, and then, uh, and then we'll convince you there. And then uh, Baptism Sunday is coming up as well on April the 25th. Um, so that'll be exciting. I think we already have six or seven uh, folks signed up for that, so that should be exciting. Uh, if you still need to, if you need to be baptized as a believer, please come and see me after the service or shoot me an email or a text message and we can get that arranged as well. So I think that is all by way of announcement. So if you would please stand again as we continue to worship. <coughs> in his hands who has numbered every grain of sand kings and nations tremble at his voice all creation rises to rejoice behold our God seated on his throne come let us adore him behold our king nothing can compare come let us adore him to the Lord who can question any of his words who can teach the one who knows all things who can fathom all his wondrous needs behold our God seated on 
his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Who has felt the nails upon his hands? Bearing all the guilt of sinful man, God eternal, humble to the grave, Jesus Savior, risen now to reign, behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore. Come, let us adore him. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Please be seated. All right. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. 
And I think it says in your worship guide that we'll go through 1032, but we're just going to, we're, we're only, only going to cover uh, 9, 18 through 29 this morning, and then we'll, uh, we'll cover 10 and 11 next week. And that'll, that'll end our, our Genesis uh, study for a while. Um, and then we'll have Easter, and then we'll be in the, uh, what did I say we were going to be in? Sermon on the Mount. Thank you, Shelby. Um, from, the, from there on out in, into the summer. So Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. This is God's word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, we again thank you for gathering us. God, thank you for uh, just the beauty of your word um, that speaks to us, God. Uh, help us to, to see these words as what they are, your very word, uh, not Kevin's words or anybody else's, but your word speaking to us right now. To open our eyes to, to see and our ears to hear and understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, stories like this one here in Genesis chapter 9 remind us uh, that the Bible is a very real and a, and a very earthy book. I think at times we try to hold the words that we find in between uh, these leather covers as one about perfect people who can do no wrong. As if the characters in the Bible are some version of ancient superheroes that set us an example to live by. So preachers preach things like, be like Noah, or be like David. And then you come to Genesis 9.21, and you see that Noah's third recorded act is pass out drunk on homemade wine. So then we're left saying, be like the Noah who tears apart the ark to make an altar to worship God. Don't be like the Noah who has a little too much to drink. But the reality is, and we see it here in the text, the worshiping Noah and the drunk Noah are the same people. Which tells us, that we don't have to try to be like Noah. We are Noah. 
We already are Nick. We already are David. So at one moment, we are on our knees in worship, praising God like we're doing here this morning. And then the next moment, we are getting drunk on our own wine. And that might be wine. But more often than not, we're getting drunk on our success and our financial security and lust and anger and laziness and control and selfishness and anxiety and fear and guilt. And this should tell us just how much we need God's intervention. We can't afford not to be constantly dependent on Him. And our awareness of sin, I believe, is one way that that forces us to tether ourselves to the cross. Because God knows this. He knows that we are sinful people. He knows that we are broken. He knows that we are weak, which is why He continues to work out His good plan in this world that culminates in the person and work of Christ. So we'll look at the text with this, with this same pattern in mind as we look at three things. One, we'll look at the fall of Noah. Second, we'll look at the sin of Ham. And then third, we'll look at the faithfulness of God. The fall of Noah, the sin of Ham, and the faithfulness of God. So first, the fall of Noah We're first introduced to Noah back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, that said this about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Pretty good start. But we also see that Noah is described in the New Testament as well. He is described in the New Testament as a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. So even with this kind of introduction and this kind of legacy that Noah has left for us, Noah was not able to walk through life unscathed by sin's bite. The old problem still makes itself known, even to Noah. Even in the life of this one who who walked with God, who, who trusted the Lord for over 300 days inside this ark with no answers in sight. Even this one who received God's covenant promise personally, audibly, is now described as drunk and naked in his tent. So the starkness that these verses uh, have in common with the fall narrative in Genesis 3 show just how prevalent sin is even in this recreation. That we haven't gotten that far away from what has happened with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. The same pattern still is there. We see the pattern of taking. We see the pattern of, of nakedness and shame show back up. And then we see the pattern of curses and blessings. All from Genesis 3 show up back here in Genesis chapter 9. And through his actions... Noah shows us just how true God's words are from Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. When God says, The intention of man's heart is evil from youth. So what we see here, after Noah has uh, gotten off of the ark, we don't see, what we see here is, isn't a brave new world. 
which is what a lot of people were hoping in, but we actually see the same old world rearing its ugly head. The existence of sin is still there, and the same pattern of sin is still present. Think of your own sin patterns. You see something you like, you take it, you're exposed, hopefully, you feel shame, you suffer consequences. And this lets us know that the the life of, of faithful obedience does have its pitfalls. The author and pastor Eugene Peterson called the life of faith uh, a long obedience in the same direction, which is the title of his book as well. A long obedience in the same direction, which I think is the, the perfect description of the Christian life. That the same direction is not, a, not just a, a constant rising line that we all would hope for, but that it is a, it is a line that is moving in the same direction, but is met with Lots of deep valleys and occasionally some high peaks. But all the while moving in the exact same direction. And that same direction is moving closer and closer to Christ. Even in the lows. And I would say even more so in the lows. We are moving closer to Christ. And obedience is is the key to this kind of faithfulness. Even when you stumble, obedience is the key. It's called repentance. So the fall of Noah is a true tale that engages us all. We are all Noah. He is the picture of one who is walking in this long obedience in the same direction. He is the picture of a a true scoundrel who cannot help but be dependent on Christ in every area of his life. I mean, you have this humiliating scene laid before all of the world to see for eternity. Laid before you. It's the only reason... That, uh, that Noah can still be referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, like this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverence fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, whatever we want to say about Noah, it seems that the major problem and weirdness lies with the sin of his son, Ham, in verses 22 and 23. Now, obviously, this deserves some time because it is such a strange scene. I know a number of you have come up to me in your reading of Genesis this year and said, what is going on here? What is this all about? And so I immediately answered with, I don't know. But now I got, I got a little bit of a clearer picture here. But, um, but I want us to be clear here that, that, that Noah's behavior of getting drunk and laying naked in his tent and, and living in a, and choosing foolishly is what prompts this violation of Ham. It's what prompts it. 
Because Noah was in clear violation of two offenses when it came to wine. Nothing wrong with wine, okay? It's what we do with it is what's wrong. And that was drunkenness and nakedness. That was Noah's problem. And that's what prompted Ham to move forward in his sin. So who is Ham? Well, he's Noah's second son. Uh, And the text tells us twice that Ham is the father of Canaan. And that will become more important as we move on. But there are several theories concerning Ham's sin. Because we have to be asking the question, what is so bad about seeing his father's nakedness? I'm sure that many of you can testify that you've walked in on one of your parents naked and you're doing okay. I know you're getting a little uncomfortable that I said that, but you're doing okay, but no curses were handed down because uh, because you did that, although you might feel cursed for what you saw. Um, But you're doing okay. So asking that question and thinking through that uh, reality, there has to be something a bit deeper here in verse 22 that warrants such a reaction from Noah in verse 25. I mean, he hands out curses, not on Ham, but also his family. So there has to be something deeper here. So the first theory is one of violence, as some believe that Ham might have inflicted upon his father in this scene. Uh, But this doesn't hold too much weight because um, the, the remedy that his other two sons bring is not medical care, uh, but it is simply just laying a a blanket on top of him to to cover him up. So that one doesn't really hold much weight. So another theory is that Ham wasn't even involved at all in this scene, and that it was Ham's son Canaan that did this deed, which is why the curses were cast down upon uh, Canaan instead of Ham. You don't hear Ham brought up in the curses. But this doesn't hold weight either, as the text explicitly tells us that it was Ham who was involved in seeing his father and then running and telling his brother. So we can throw that one out. A third theory that you've probably heard uh, is more popular than these last two, and, and that is some sort of sexual violation has happened. And it's either taken place between Ham and his father, or Ham and his mother. So this theory is strong because of the language that we see here. So you you see the language of uncovering and covering, and we see that pop up elsewhere in other parts of the scripture, and it's used to describe serious sexual offenses, specifically the sin of incest. We see this in Leviticus chapter 18, and Leviticus chapter 20. So both of these passages deal with the laws against this specific type of behavior. Leviticus 18, 6 through 8, I can tell that some of the parents are going to have really interesting lunch conversations today. So you're welcome. Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 8 says this, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So another reason 
this uh, theory is taken so seriously is that this offense is particularly associated with the Canaanites. So those people who were born out of the line of Ham's son, Canaan. So these are the descendants of Ham, and it's why it's the, the fact that Ham is the father of Canaan is emphasized over and over again in these verses. So this would, this would also help explain the, the severity of, of the curses that Noah places on Ham and his son, which do seem a bit over the top if it were just a dishonoring of one's parents. And then you also see a parallel passage in Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38, where Lot's daughters essentially do something very similar in taking advantage of their dad's drunkenness to have sex with him. And they actually get him drunk in order to do that. Which then explains the emergence of two more groups of people that are a lot like the Canaanites who are infamous for sexual sin. So, not that you need my permission, but I would be okay if you landed with that particular interpretation. I'd be okay with that. I think there's a lot of good, a good solid biblical evidence for, for that particular theory. But the one hitch, and you knew this was coming, the one hitch in this theory is that Noah, we are told in verse 21, uncovers himself. It's a small hitch there, but Noah uncovers himself. So it would make more sense biblically, going back to the passage in Leviticus, if Ham was the one uncovering Noah. And the text doesn't tell us that Ham does that. It says Noah essentially got drunk and got naked himself. Which leads to a final theory that I find most plausible, uh, but it still holds the severity of sin in high regard, and I think even more so. And that is that Ham did not do anything else other than see the nakedness of his father, which seems ludicrous to us. It does. We, we think that might be, cr be crazy, but, but to Noah, to Noah, such an act was serious enough to prompt the curses upon Ham and his descendants. And this is difficult for us to understand as modern people. Sex and nakedness and sexuality are so normal in our culture that Noah's reaction seems overly dramatic. We live in a culture that celebrates seeing and looking. I mean, you think of, of, of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's performance last week at the Grammys, uh, and this is Cosmopolitan's magazine uh, headline the following day. Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B's Grammy performance was literally incredible. And so to live in the context in which we live in, and then come to a verse like this in Scripture almost seems puritanical. Because we have been so desensitized by the culture that we don't think looking is a violation. And we write it off as normal. But nakedness in the Old Testament from the very beginning was a symbol of shame for fallen humanity. Look at how Adam and Eve respond to their own nakedness at the fall in chapter 3, verse 7. 
It tells us the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths to cover themselves. And then God's continued provision for covering them in chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So there is something obviously going on that is deeper than merely Ham stumbling in an accidental way into his father's tent. Because for that, there would be no blame, and we wouldn't be reading these verses this morning and studying them like we are. Rather, the blame lies in the way Ham reacted. So instead of covering his father's nakedness, he exploits it. Instead of honoring his father in, yes, a vulnerable and foolish state, he dishonors him. But this still seems out of balance. This seems out of balance with the curses uh, that, that, that Noah lays upon him in verse 25. So there still must be something deeper here. And I kept asking, my question, asking myself that question this week in my study, and then I came across one commentator's comments that I think get at the seriousness of this particular situation, but also connects us with the broader context of Genesis and even the Bible as, as a whole. And that is that Ham did not merely dishonor his father, but that he disliked his father as a preacher of righteousness. That Ham, instead of honoring his father in showing grace toward him as this covenant bearer in his fallen condition, rather has found that the godly man, Noah, is no better than his neighbor, and he rushes to exploit this reality to his brothers. So Ham is rejoicing in the fact that his father's fall to the point that he tries to bring his brothers, and just to remind you, his brothers and their wives are the only people on earth. So what Ham is doing is he is trying to bring the entire human race against God's anointed. Does that sound familiar to you? It's exactly what we see in Christ. That the entire human race is brought against God's anointed. It's the pattern that we've seen already in Genesis chapter 4 with the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Then again in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 2 that there is always this ungodly line and this godly line and they are always opposed to one another. This is why later in, in the New Testament it says that they are unequally yoked. They cannot be together. So one line is opposed to the other. And that is the offense that brings another bifurcation into God's world. And this is what leads to the stark consequences uh, that we see it between the two in verses 25 through 27, which mostly uh, highlights the faithfulness of God. Even though we're seeing a, a group of people uh, be blessed, and another group of people down through generations be cursed, we still see within that the faithfulness of God. 
So again, the curse and the blessing focus our attention on the two groups of people that exist in the world that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The righteous and the wicked. So let me just be clear here and say that both of these groups of people, the righteous group and the wicked, both of these groups are full of jacked-up individuals. Neither of these groups are exempt from that. Neither of these groups are exempt from, from brokenness and broken people and sin. And I think Noah's life alone shows us that. The only difference in these two groups of jacked-up individuals is that one has confessed, I am in need. I can't do this on my own. And the other has not. This is why Paul tells us that this need is met only by grace through faith in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. So that in no way can we boast in our work in the matter. There is none of us in this room that can point back to our good deed that saved us from God's wrath. Nobody can do that. The only thing that we can do is point to the person and work of Jesus and his finished work that happened on the cross. It's the only thing that we can do. We are not dependent upon, on who we are or what we've done or what we haven't done. We are only dependent on Christ alone. And this is the author's intent in Genesis. He wants us to show us this, this contrast between uh, the deeds of Ham and the deeds of Shem and Japheth, which become the basis for this curse and this blessing that we have here in, in verses 25 to 27. So in covering their father, and you can tell just how careful they were that they did not want to shame their father, Shem and Japheth were being like Adam and Eve in chapter 3, verse 7, in covering their nakedness, in covering their shame, in covering their sin, and ultimately, they were being like God in chapter 3, verse 21. Because they remember like Noah, God's faithfulness toward them. They remember that God has plucked them out of a sinful generation and that God has remembered them as he's brought them through this, this horrible thing called the flood, this flood of judgment. They remember God's faithfulness. This is not just an act of two little boys who want to be the favorite sons. This is the act of two men who want to bring God glory through honoring their father. And Ham does not follow their, that example. No, Ham's actions are more in line with those that God warns about later in Exodus chapter 26, who expose their own nakedness before others and before God on purpose. So in the sons of Noah, we see these two groups of people emerge again, like we saw in Genesis chapter 4 and in Genesis chapter 6. Those who, like Adam and Eve, hide the shame of their nakedness, which is to say that those who realize their own brokenness and their own need of being covered, 
And then there are those who, like Ham or the Canaanites, who have no sense of shame before a holy God. And so to one group goes blessing, and to the other goes a curse. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the Bible. And let me just continue to remind you, there is no third group. There is no in-between the righteous and the wicked. You are either one or the other. And if you have not received Christ as your Savior, if you have not uh, um, uh, repented and believed the gospel, you are in the camp of the wicked, not the righteous. Well, this is how we continue to see God's faithfulness as well. That despite the truth of chapter 8, verse 21, where God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for I know the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And being reminded again that both of these groups are made up of very broken people, even so, even so, God continues to offer redemption for those who are his. In Aldous Huxley's classic novel, that you may have read in school, A Brave New World, there comes a point where the main character, John, is disgusted uh, by the artificial, mindless happiness that he sees in the citizens of what's called the world state, and he defiantly utters this classic line in the book. He says, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. I'm claiming the right to be unhappy, which might sound kind of funny in our ears because we want to be happy. But John here is saying, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy because he sees the happiness of this brave new world that the people around him are trying to create. He sees it for what it is. And it's a facade. It's fake. So instead, he chooses reality, even if it means unhappiness at times. Even if it means suffering. Because the brave new world is exactly that. It's a facade. It's fake. It's a false reality that says, I can live however I want as long as I am happy. But we quickly find out, as we've seen here in Genesis chapter 9, that the brave new world is not what we end up with, is it? We never do. No matter how hard we try, to, we, we continue to end up back where we started in Genesis chapter 3. The same old world, the same old sin, and the same old need of a Savior. And it's only when we begin to realize that it is God alone who is moving us toward a new world. That it's God alone who is, who is moving us towards a new creation. And this is a new creation uh, not engineered by human hands. It's a new creation that is not propelled by us in any way, but by and through Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this stark reminder from a somewhat hard text in your word that reminds us uh, 
really just throws in the fa- in our face um, just the reality of our own sin and brokenness, but also encourages us and gives us hope uh, in Christ, in whose uh, redemption our our hope lies. Not in ourselves, not in not in who we are, or what we what we've done, or what we've accomplished, or what we will do, or what we will accomplish, but it rests in Jesus Christ alone. We see that in Noah's life. We see that in the life of his sons here in the text, God, and hopefully we see it in our own lives, that we are fully dependent on the person and work of Christ, the finished work of Jesus uh, that was played out for us on the cross and in his resurrection. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.